All right. Sorry, uh, I am an insurance guy, so I'm going to go fix this candle that's leaning. There's carpet there. You should live with me. It's not very fun. In fact, when I was, my daughter was younger, she had a friend that called me the fun slayer. But that was more because I wouldn't let her FaceTime after a certain time of night. It's good to see you. Uh, sorry, that was not anywhere in my notes. It's good to see you this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, so you can go ahead, if you have a hard copy, a physical copy of that, I would encourage you to grab it, uh, because you may even see some things that I'm not going to hit on, but in the context, that would be enlightening maybe for you, and so just grab that. Isaiah chapter 9 is where we're going to be. We are in week four of our four-week series of Advent, looking at the coming of Jesus, both at Christmas, we celebrate the coming of Christ, and then also looking forward to his second coming. As Christians, we believe that Jesus came from eternity, took on flesh, and was born. And we celebrate that at Christmas. And we do believe that he will return, that he has a body now physically, that he will return to earth one day as he promised. And so that's what we look at, the arrival initially and the future arrival of Jesus Christ. And so we've kind of framed this series around the idea of hope. Because as I've said all along, hope is a powerful, powerful thing for human beings. Hope, it, it stirs us, it, <clears throat> it roots us, it anchors us in times of trouble, in times of fear. And so we've looked at just the idea of hope. And what, what I've done through this, to this point is I've looked at it from the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's account, which is a unique account, they all are unique, but Matthew's is in particularly, I feel like, unique in regards to Christmas. As I said last week, Luke gives us a Charlie Brown Christmas. Matthew gives us a little bit more, um, a darker look at Christmas. And so we've been in Matthew and we've, we've looked at initially from the genealogy of Jesus that, that there's hope to be found and the hope in the genealogy, one of them, is hope for redemption. As you see the stories that are in Jesus' own genealogy, you can see that he came to redeem his people. He, that, that for us, we can surrender our story to him and that he can redeem it. He can bring life and value where, where there's not life and value. He can bring beauty from ashes in our life. The second week, we looked at the fact that we have hope from his presence, that, that the fact that Emmanuel, as we've already saying, means God with us, and that in that, there's presence, that God reinitiates his presence in the world through the person of Jesus Christ. And that, that brings us hope. And then the third week, last week, we looked at that there's hope in the darkness. As Tyson already alluded to, the reality is that Christmas can be painful, it can be dark. We live in a dark world and it's amazing and hopeful that God didn't see the mess that we made of his creation and decide to, to stay away, but he entered in to bring hope in the darkness. And so we finished this week with the idea of hope for the world. Now we've kind of talked about this already, hope for the world over the last three weeks, but really kind of honing in hope for the world. And we're going to look at it from the, this famous prophecy in Isaiah chapter nine. So if you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter nine, I'm going to initially just read verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born. <clears throat> To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government 
and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Part of today's text has been our benediction the last four weeks. So it's going to sound familiar. Now, for a lot of you, if you grew up around church, you've heard this before. But it's interesting that this prophecy was about 700-ish years before Christ came. We look at this on, on the back half of it, and we can see all kinds of hope. But, but I believe even Isaiah was trying to point Israel to a lot of hope in these two verses. It brings hope because of all that this promise entails. Hope because of who this promise was ultimately for. And hope because this promise did come true, despite maybe longer than anyone really would have wanted of waiting, it did come true. And so to see the hope packed into these two verses, I want us to look at three aspects of it this morning in our time together. I want us to see the names of the coming king and to think about those. The names of the coming king, the nature of the coming kingdom, and the narrow yet sure way of hope for the world. So the names of the coming king, the nature of the coming kingdom, and the narrow yet sure way of hope for the world. And so as we begin just looking at these names, Isaiah gives us some, some names of a coming king, of a coming ruler that's going to come. And for many of us, I mean, again, like I said, if this is something that's, that's super familiar to you, I think it's easy to become desensitized to it. Now, I will say, not because I'm awesome or anything, I don't know that I ever have become desensitized to it. I remember the first time I think that I remember, like, first recollection I have of these names of the coming ruler was from Handel's Messiah. As a kid, my parents listened to Handel's Messiah. It was written a couple centuries ago. And if you like symphonies, if you like choirs, Handel's, and you like scripture, because that's basically all it is, Handel's Messiah is legit. If you don't like symphonies and you don't like choirs, Handel's Messiah is legit. It's a bop, right? I mean, you've, you've got to listen to this. It's so good. And so I remember hearing that. And I remember even as a kid getting to, like the one that really hit me was for unto us a child is born. Like Hallelujah Chorus is in Handel's Messiah. You're probably familiar with that. But the one that I always loved the most was for unto us, a child was born. I just remember I can hear the violins in my head. I listen to it every Christmas. I'm not gonna sing it for you because I love you. But it is, as I said, it's a bop, it's good. Check it out, for unto us, a child was born. That's why I remember this initially. But even a few weeks ago, we sang a song, um, Oh, Come All You Faithful, with a tag on the end of it, a bridge, his name shall be. And I remember I just got to that wonderful counselor. I, couldn't, I squeaked it out at best. There's something about these names that just resonates with me, and I think most likely with you. But I do suspect that it may not all be the same. Maybe one name resonates with you over another. So let's look at each one briefly here, starting with Wonderful Counselor. The coming ruler shall be called Wonderful Counselor. And I would say we are kind of living right now in a renaissance, so to speak, of the idea just in general of counseling. Of therapy. I was doing a little bit of research that according to 2018 study by Barna Research, 42% of U.S. adults <clears throat> have seen a counselor at some point. In 2018, 42% of U.S. adults, 
of U.S. adults have seen a counselor at some point, and 36% are open to it. So that's 78%. In 2018, of U.S. adults were either open to or had seen a counselor. There's, there's a renaissance in counseling, and rightly so. And according to Statista.com, the number of Americans in counseling in 2002, post 9-11, 2002, was 20, I think it was 27.2 million Americans. By 2020, that number reached... 41.4 million Americans are either receiving counseling, have been part of counseling. I mean, 2018, 42%. I mean, not much has changed since 2018 in our world, right? Counseling, therapy, we, we, and I've heard a lot of people say, like, the reality is we probably all need it to some degree, especially after what we've been through the last few years seems like the negative stigma against counseling is dying. Why? Because life just continually gets harder and harder. And it's amazing because what counts, think about what counselors do, what they help with. They listen. I mean, it's, sometimes it's just helpful to be listened to. Just, just to get things off your chest. Just to express things that you are feeling. But they're not just good listeners, they're empathetic. They feel it. Like, that's not, this may shock you, that's not always a strength of mine, empathy. Like, you could come to me with tears and I'd be like, you okay? And you'd be like, yeah. I'd be like, I think they're fine. <laughs> you know, you, you, you cried three weeks ago and you tell my wife you're fine, she'll know it. She's like, oh, no, no, I can see that. Empathy. Like, she's not a counselor, but she could be. Empathy, listeners, wise. Like, counselors are wise. They They're able to give advice. They're able to listen and process and help you see maybe some areas that you don't even see because of your own perspective. They can navigate or they can help you navigate your heart. Isn't it interesting that God describes the ruler to come as a counselor? A wonderful counselor at that. And you begin to think about because of where we are in history looking at Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, you begin to think about, hmm, think about his parables. Jesus takes these these commonplace things like weddings and banquets, farming, fishing, and then he he uses them and and adds a spiritual texture to them. You, You have to imagine that people that heard his teaching, then attend a wedding, and they think, oh, you know, I remember when that teacher said, now that makes, makes total sense. It texturizes the wedding. Think about somebody who's casting their line out of their nets out to fish and thinking, oh, wait, I'd be a fisher of, of men and women for the glory of, of God. You can think about the farmer who's spreading seed and thinking through Jesus, even in this, even in a more broad aspect of his teaching is is counseling and, and showing truth and, and navigating hearts. You think about Jesus with Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus comes to him in the middle of the night because he's a Pharisee, but he's curious. So he comes kind of under the cloak of darkness to, to engage with Jesus. And Jesus' first response to him is, you got to be born again, you're right? Nicodemus is like, what? See, for Jesus, he, he knows Nicodemus and he knows where he needs to engage Nicodemus and he's calling him to kind of see beyond. He says, you're a teacher in Israel, you don't understand these things. 
He's trying to call Nicodemus to see past where he's looking. Initially, he's a wonderful counselor. Think about with Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times. And when Jesus engages Peter after his resurrection, he, he calls Peter to profess his love for him three times. It's not a shame factor that Jesus is doing. It's inviting him into redemption. Jesus, a wonderful counselor. Look at Mary and Martha in John 11. Their brother Lazarus has died. Jesus knew he was dying, waited four days to show up on purpose so that the glory of God may be revealed. And when he shows up, Martha comes out to him and says, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And the wonderful counselor engages her theology and he engages her belief. He said, your brother will live again. Do you believe that I'm the resurrection and the life? But then he sees her sister, Mary, weeping, and what does he do? He weeps. Jesus is a wonderful counselor because he knows us and he knows our hearts. He knows where we need direction. He knows where we need empathy. He knows where we need to be called to a deeper belief. He knows where we need redemption. He knows where we need to be challenged. He's a wonderful counselor. But how can he know our heart? Because he's a mighty God. He's a mighty God. The child to be born was to be God. He could see into our hearts. You read the gospels, he's perceiving people's thoughts all the time. I mean, I can't imagine how terrified I would have been to be in a room with Jesus right? You just want to be in the corner being like, I love you, God. I love you, God. But the Lord, you know, you just want to be thinking all kinds of scripture if you can bring it up. Because like he can read your thoughts. He can read your heart. Why? Because he's God. He can calm the seas because he's God. He can heal the lame because he's God. He can raise people from the dead because he's God. He's not just a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God. Isaiah says that we will call him everlasting father. Now, don't get tripped up on this and be like, wait, I thought, thought Jesus was the son. He is the son. What most, in fact, every commentator that I looked at believes is that this is talking not necessarily about a Trinitarian sense about the father, but that in a benevolent protector sense. That as, as the, the coming ruler would come, that he would be a benevolent father-like figure to his people, to his constituents of his kingdom. You know, that's, it's interesting though that, that he is God the son. He's not God the father, but he's the everlasting father. And he's, in fact, if you read the New Testament, Jesus says things like, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. So while Isaiah is not saying that Jesus was God the father, he w we do see in the New Testament that Jesus resembles God the father. That, that Hebrews says that he's the exact imprint of his nature. Colossians 1.19 says that the fullness of God dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. He was the mighty God. He was the everlasting father, fatherly, benevolent, and everlasting. Jesus has no beginning, no end. Don't be fooled. He was born in Bethlehem wrapped in human flesh, but he's always existed. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's the everlasting father. And the last thing that Isaiah says that we can call him is Prince of Peace, which makes sense because when you consider that he's God, he's eternal, he's everlasting, he's all-knowing, he's a wonderful counselor, 
Man, you could think if that's the kind of ruler he is, you can experience some peace in that. The Prince of Peace. The context of Isaiah is actually written while, Isaiah, while Israel is under the rule of King Ahaz. Second Kings says that King Ahaz wasn't such a good dude. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, sorry, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old. Now, I don't know how many of you here are 20 years old. I know if I was reigning at 20 years old, would not, be, would not have been good. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Israel, in a downward spiral from ungodly leadership and idolatry, and Isaiah comes promising a better ruler is coming, a bringer of peace despite King Ahaz's foolishness and Assyria's shadow over Judah that he is coming. And Jesus, as we've said before, Jesus comes to be, to bring peace. He's the Prince of Peace, peace with God. Peace with God. We are born in strife with God because of our rebellion. But, but Colossians 1.20 says that by the blood of Christ's cross, we have peace with God. But Philippians says not only that, that there is a, a peace that surpasses understanding that we can have internally in our hearts when we're anxious. You see, because of our privileged place in history, we know that this coming king in Isaiah 9 was Jesus Christ. And Isaiah tells us about the nature of the coming king by giving us names that we can call him. And we see how Jesus was the fulfillment of these names. So my question to you today is this, which of these names do you yearn for this Christmas? Do, do you feel just like, I need, to, I need to call out to him as my wonderful counselor? Are you hurting Do you have questions? Are you not sure which way to go? Do you need to call out, wonderful counselor? I need your direction. Do you need to call out to him as mighty God? Do you have circumstances right now in your life where you find yourself just going like, I need intervention? from somebody outside of me and honestly just from somebody supernatural because this is not working. Do you need to call out to him, mighty God? And here's the deal. I'm not saying that if you call out to him, mighty God, he's gonna step into that circumstance and fix it because you know why? He's a wonderful counselor. He, he might look at that and go, I, you need to trust me. I, I know you need me to step in here, but trust me, I'm doing what's for your good right now. I'm, I'm not saying that it is good, but I'm saying that God is going to work in and over, sovereignly over our decisions that we make. But we call out to him still, mighty God, will you intervene here? Will you heal here? Do you need to call him everlasting father? Do you need to be reminded that, that, that his disposition towards you is benevolent protector? That he loves you and that guess what? He's everlasting. His perspective is different than yours. Sometimes we get cloudy perspective because of our circumstances. And so to call out to him as everlasting father is a way of saying, you know the beginning and the end and you see where I'm at in history and I'm just calling out to you to give me a deeper perspective. 
Or are you twisted up inside and you need the Prince of Peace? Or have you never turned to Christ in faith? You don't just need peace in your heart, you need peace with God. Where are you at today? What name of Jesus are you yearning to call him this Christmas? Or are you yearning to call him all of them? Because the beauty of Christmas is this is not four rulers coming. This is one ruler. And his name is Jesus. And if you need in all four of those ways, you have one name to call. It's the names of the coming king. Do you see them? Are you encouraged? Are you hopeful from the names of the coming king, the king who did come and the king who will return? But also I want you to be encouraged by the nature of the way Isaiah describes the coming kingdom. Look again at verse six. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Verse seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I want you to see three quick things to notice about the nature of the coming kingdom that Isaiah prophesies when this ruler comes. And the first one is that his government, or as I'm saying, his kingdom will be upon his shoulder. Now, this is interesting because this is a contrast directly to what is previously said in Isaiah 9, 3, and 4, where he says this, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide their spoil. Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, this is God's people, and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. You see, the government of the coming king will replace the oppressive burden of the existing government, the existing um, threats to Israel. That incoming this king is that he's going to usher in a kingdom in which he is going to shoulder the burden on. You see, the context of Isaiah, this would be both the wicked king of Ahaz and the threat of Assyria on the horizon. But for us today, we, we don't have an Ahaz, we don't have an Assyria that we're concerned about, but the reality is we all have a burden and an oppressor. We all feel the burden on our shoulders of our sin and the fact that we wanna have our kingdom. I say this all the time because I know it's true in my own heart. We want to have our own little kingdom where we're in charge. And so we, we hoist that government on our shoulders and we, we try to make things work in our little kingdom. It's exhausting. It's burdening. It doesn't work out the way we want to. We don't see life where we do this. We, we feel the weight and the sting of our sin. And then we have an oppressor because we have an accuser who's basically, see what you did there? See how terrible you are? Just this week, I'm not, I know that probably many of you, if you have social media, saw uh, one of the a celebrity uh, dancer took his own life. And, and from the outside, you look at that, and you're like, why would he do that? It seems like he's got everything that you would ever want in life. But the reality is there's a liar. There's an accuser that speaks. I mean, I can just tell you from my, maybe, maybe you haven't felt it since we're talking about counseling. Um, I feel it. 
I have these, these things that say, you're, you're not worthy. You're worthless. Nobody really loves you because I don't know you. You know what? Your family would be better off if you were gone. Just me? Okay, pray for me. And this is not a confession like, you don't need to be worried. But just to say, like, there is a liar. There's an oppressor. There's an accuser. And then you have the fact that we try to be our own God and it's a burden. And the nature of the coming kingdom is that the king says, I'll be the king. I'll carry the kingdom. And you can come under me as a benevolent father, as a wise and wonderful counselor, as a mighty God and a prince of peace in your life. Not just that, the second thing we see is that this coming kingdom is going to be upheld by justice and righteousness. We have a coming king and a coming kingdom in Isaiah 9 who says that my kingdom, the way things are going to work, not only will I carry this, not only will I break the rod of your oppressor, but that in my kingdom, we value justice. We value righteousness. Righteousness meaning both moral integrity and holiness and also meaning faithfulness to his promises. Justice, meaning that those who are oppressed, those who are, who are not treated with fairness, this is not the way my kingdom works. The kingdom that I'm bringing will uphold justice, will uphold righteousness. I will be faithful. And then the third thing we see here is that his kingdom and his peace are increasing forever. You see, even though this prophecy in Isaiah 9 was initially written to Israel, you do see that really throughout all of Scripture that this is bursting the banks of Israel. Look at what Isaiah 9, sorry, I said Isaiah because that's what they say in Britain and it just sounds cooler. Isaiah 9 uh, look at verse one. But there will be gloom for her. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness. That's everybody. Has seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You see, even in Isaiah 9, he's starting to say like this coming ruler isn't just for you, Israel. It's for everyone. If you're like, ah, I don't know if I, Psalm 72, just because I can hear you questioning. Psalm 72, verse 8, may he, this is the king, have dominion from sea to sea and from rivers, from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, while Isaiah 9 is aimed at the northern tribes and, and Judah and ended up being in view here is actually more than that. It's all the nations. The idea that Jesus came to bless not just Israel, but the whole world is not actually found only in Isaiah 9. It's not only in Psalm 72. You go all the way back to Genesis 3, before there was Israel, before there was the people of God, when it's just Adam and Eve, you have God telling Eve and Adam and the serpent, he looks at the serpent and says, one of her, Eve's offspring is going to come and you, you're gonna wage war with him. You're gonna bruise his heel. 
and he's going to crush your head. The promise from, Isaiah, from Genesis 3 is for the whole world. For all of those who would come through the line of Adam and Eve, every one of us that our oppressor is after us, but God, through the offspring of Eve, through Jesus Christ, while he will be bruised by this serpent, he will ultimately crush him. Abraham, we've already said this in the genealogy sermon, Abraham, the promise to him that his family would be a blessing to the nations was not about the entire nation of Israel. It was about one in particular who would come and bless the world, Jesus. That's why it's shown that he's in the line of Abraham. God's plan was always, in fact, if you read the scriptures, it says before even Adam and Eve were created that Jesus had agreed to come as a sacrifice for atonement for the foundation of the world. The plan all along was for God to send his son to earth in human flesh to bring hope and blessing to those who would trust in him of every tribe, of every tongue, of every people across all history. And notice that when this happens, the end result in, in chapter nine, verse five, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle to mold and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Like, what is that? That's victory. The boot you're wearing for, for battle, burn it. Don't need it anymore. The, the clothes that are bloodied by waging war, burn it. Battles are over. The victory is won. Peace reigning and increasing. The increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Brother and sister, you in? Yes. You in? See, the names of the king and the nature of his kingdom are so inviting, they, they draw us in. Who wouldn't want to live under this type of king and this type of kingdom? Turns out a lot of people. Why is that? Well, I think partly because one king, one kingdom, seems a bit narrow. And narrowness has, has kind of a baggage to it in our culture. When you think about whether it's an ideology or a certain type of theology or a political stance or a person, if you say like this person's narrow-minded, it's not really, you know, like, it's kind of negative. We don't really like the idea of narrow. And interestingly, if you look at Isaiah 9, while the promises are there to bring us hope, they're very narrow. The first one we see, like I'd say it's, it's narrow in entry point. Look at the first part of that. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. We had to receive. It didn't say for us to go to the child who's born. For us to come back to the son who's given. No, 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 we, we couldn't bridge that chasm. It's narrow an entry point. Why? Because instead of it being any way that you think you can get to God, just take that route. And you know, if you're, if you are in your heart, just like serious about it, it'll all work out for you. It's not what Isaiah 9 says. It says that all ways don't lead. There's one way that all the way that we could have access to the Father narrows down to one person. 
a baby born in a manger in Podunkville. It's narrow in its entry point. So narrow, one king, one kingdom. Grace to you, a son, is given, not earned, not the wages is this son. To you, the son is given. One kingdom, one way, one child born to us. But not only that, it's narrow in scope. The government shall be upon what? His shoulder. Jesus is the king. And it's his shoulders that the government sits. It's not a war room where we kind of bat back and forth, like, well, here's what I think would be a good law, Jesus. Oh, I'll take that into consideration. Holy Spirit, what do you think? You know, like that's not, that's not how that played out. One kingdom on one person's shoulders. It's not a shared load. It's not a shared burden. He's king and we are not. It's narrow in its entry point. It's narrow in its scope. And lastly, it's narrow in reality and flourishing. What does that mean? Glad you asked. Let's look at verse seven again. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus establishes his government based on his justice and righteousness. Here's what I mean. It's his view of reality. The underpinnings of his government are his justice, his righteousness. There's no debate. This is not each person living their own truth. Jesus says, I'm the truth, I'm the way, but guess what? I'm the life. That my way, because I created the world, because I wove the fabric of the way human beings were designed to live, then what I'm saying is reality is reality. And if you wanna live under my rule and reign, you're going to live under it in a way that which I'm showing you the reality that will make you flourish. His justice, his righteousness lines up with reality since he's the everlasting father from beginning to end and the mighty God, the creator of life because he of all people should know how to properly instruct us and to counsel us in the way life leads to flourishing. And if you think, well, you're putting words in his mouth. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Narrow is the government on his shoulders. Narrow is the way of grace. It only comes through a child who is given to us because we are still in need of the gift of grace. So while this kingdom brings hope in the sense that it's wide in regards to who can enter, it's narrow in how you enter and who calls the shots. One way, one person one kingdom, King Jesus. But, but if you can get over the hurdle 
of the narrowness of this king and kingdom. You can see the coming king and the coming kingdom as beautiful and good news for your soul. Jesus is establishing a kingdom that is righteous and just. And the thing is, we all, we all want a government like that. But a quick survey of our history as Americans and of the world's history, no one can establish a government like that, much less uphold it, except for one, King Jesus. But... Here's the crux. We need to be able to believe with our hearts and with our minds that this is good news and that Jesus not just can do this, but that he will. How do you do that? Well, as I've said all along, the working definition that I've used in the series for hope, for biblical hope, is the assurance of a future reality. So how can we be sure? As we close, I think there's two ways in this passage right here. We have hope from the reality of Isaiah. Look at the promise of Isaiah 9. Like I said earlier, we're privileged where we live in history. This, this happened like 2,700 years ago. That this was written. But as you... As we look back on history, we can see that Jesus fulfilled this. So one way we, we can have hope and be sure to have an assurance of a future reality is that we can already see God keeping his promises from Isaiah 9, that Jesus came, that he was a wonderful counselor, he was a mighty God, he was a benevolent protector and everlasting father and a prince of peace. And you can see that his government, that Jesus' kingdom is increasing from Bethlehem to Babylon, from Nazareth to New Zealand to Newfoundland, from Judea to Jerusalem to Jericho to Jordan to Jonesboro in Arkansas 2022, his government has increased and there knows no end. We have hope because when you have this perspective that what he promised is already coming true. We see it in Jesus. We see the fact we're sitting in this room looking at Isaiah's prophecy from that long ago. We begin to remember. See, sometimes we can give advice to people or, or we can think theoretically about things and think, well, that sounds really good. I have hope in that until the rubber meets the road. And then it's like, maybe I don't. Sometimes we need to look back at Isaiah and go, he is faithful. Even when I don't see it, even when I don't feel it, even if I'm not sure, I can be assured because he has been faithful all along. We have hope from the reality of Isaiah. And if you don't remember that, if you're not sure, call to your mind and remember and let the wonderful counselor make it real. But lastly, in closing, we have our hope is sure because of how it is accomplished. Notice the end of verse seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is a beautiful picture as we've been talking about increasing government with no end, increasing 
peace with no end, a kingdom that is established and upheld in righteousness and justice forevermore. But how can we have hope that this is a sure reality and not just wishful thinking? Like we may be sitting here in Jonesboro, that's part of the deal, like part of the hope, like, okay, I'm seeing it play out. But how do we have hope that it will continue to increase forevermore and that God won't just eventually pull the plug? So I'm done dealing with y'all. How do we know? How do we have hope? Because it is accomplished by the zeal, the passion of the Lord of hosts. That he's more committed to it than you or I ever dream of being. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. If it depended on us, the assurance would be impossible. But if it depends on the zeal of the Lord of hosts, we can have faith and hope that it comes. The hope of the entire world at Christmas is that Jesus came as promised to inaugurate the kingdom of heaven on earth and is coming back to establish this beautiful and ever increasing peaceful kingdom forever for those who have put their faith in him. Alec Mateer says it like this on talking about Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. That's Christmas. And I want you to see this as we close. It is precisely because of the narrow nature that we can have that hope. If it was up to all these possibilities and maybe this will work, maybe this will work, you'll never have hope. But the narrowness, one baby who is God in the flesh, bringing one kingdom with an access point that is him that we receive by grace through faith. It's the narrowness of this hope that allows us to realize that there will be a day that as Otir says, our foes will fully and finally be shattered. Not our human foes, the presence of sin in our life, the rod of our oppressor, the accuser. He's already limping He's already beat. One day it will be shattered because God keeps his promises. Merry Christmas. Joy to the world because the Lord has come. Let us receive our King. we close today as a call to action if you're in the room or watching online and would just say that you're you wouldn't identify as a follower of Jesus I just want to say more or less this this can be your God This is the king you're running from.
you in? Submit your life to him by faith. Turn from your sin. Turn from your kingdom. So repentance means it's just a turning. It's like I'm living this way. No, Jesus, I, I believe that you are enough to cover my sin, to cover my shame, to usher me into real life. This can be your king. He is the king. But he can be your king. And if you're a follower of Christ in the room, I just want to say, this is your king. This is our king. A wonderful counselor. A mighty God. An everlasting father. And our prince of peace. Let's praise him together. Our Father, we are humbled that you looked into the darkness and you came to bring light. We're humbled that you saw us as sheep without a shepherd. And you intervened. Father, would you draw people to yourself now? If they're far from you, if they don't know you, if they're still running from you and they're in their rebellion, would you draw them in? Show them who you are. Melt their resistance with your great and steadfast love. And if there are those of us here today who are far from you because we're running from you, but we are your children, would you draw us back as a benevolent and everlasting father? Those that are in here that are tangled up inside with all kinds of junk and anxiety, and would you... Would you be our Prince of Peace? Jesus, would you give us counsel with our questions and would you show yourself mighty, mighty to save, mighty to intervene, trustworthy, true, and the greatest hope we ever have. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.